everybody, my name is Jacob Aloy. Welcome back to Slice of Americana. So, as a manager in my day-to-day life, that's my day job, right? Uh, a big part of it is scheduling out when things are, who to schedule on certain days and things like that. And a big conversation we were having in a production meeting the other day was how we work around religious holidays. And in doing so, we looked at the calendar, and I realized something, that this year, Passover, Easter, and Ramadan, major holidays in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, respectively, are all happening within a few weeks of each other. In fact, as you're listening to this episode, Easter and Passover have just begun. And since we're a show about American identity and culture, I thought it would be a really interesting story to talk to practitioners, clergy members, and academics about these different faiths and their holidays that they will be celebrating this year. So this episode, we're going to do exactly that. We're going to take a segment to talk about Passover, we're going to take a segment to talk about Easter, and we're going to take a segment to talk about Ramadan. Each segment will talk about the religious and cultural significance of each of these holidays in their respective faiths, as well as talking to people about family stories and traditions that they remember about growing up. This episode has a bit of a tongue-in-cheek title, The Most Wonderful Time of Year. All right, here we go. Since it is the first holiday to officially happen, out of the three holidays we will be covering on this episode, we will be starting part one with the Jewish holiday, Passover. To give us more insight into what Passover is, here is Rabbi Esther Adler. I am Rabbi Esther Adler. Uh, I have two positions here in St. Paul, Minnesota. I am the Associate Rabbi at Mount Zion Temple, a Reformed Synagogue, and that's my main gig. And I am also associate chaplain at Hamlin University. I am originally from Los Angeles, California. What else would you like to know? <laughs> I think that that's, that's perfect. Uh, you also have a background in music, correct? Uh, in, uh... I have, yes, I have an undergraduate degree in flute performance from UCLA. And I have some graduate work under my belt at Yale University, PhD work. Yes, I will say that the uh, the flute uh, performance comes in very handy and makes uh, service all the more beautiful when we get to hear that um, for Thank prayers. You. Yes, of course. Um, As we sat so, down for the bulk uh, of our interview, one of the things I wanted to ask Rabbi Adler from the get-go was how her upbringing as an American Jew in the reform movement, as well as her cultural and religious backgrounds, help influence how she celebrates Passover. And she made a very clear point to me that Judaism and her culture were not just part of her identity. They are her identity. Well, I would say all that informs my identity entirely. Um, I see Judaism more so as an identity than a faith. I always feel uh, the urge to correct someone when they, or clarify when someone asks me about my faith, because for the most part, I think for most Jews, Judaism isn't so much about their faith as about their identity, uh, as connecting both culturally and religiously, but even religiously, it's more about a way of life uh, than um, strictly a faith. I would say if you asked most Jews, most progressive Jews at least, or even very, very observant Jews uh, to, to talk about their faith, it's it's not so much a matter of faith. It's a matter of identity um, and the way we live. And so that said, how does Judaism fit into my life? It 
um, defines it, it organizes it. Um, we talk about intersectionality and multiple identities, but being a Jew is, is a primary aspect of my identity. And so it, it influences everything I see and do, the way I read the news, the way I live my day-to-day -day life, the way I celebrate my holidays. And certainly every Jew has other ways they identify. I identify as a woman, I identify as a mom, I identify as American. Um, sometimes less proudly than others, but um, so I, I identify my, I see my identity in many different ways, but it's, you probably could preface each one with the word Jewish or follow each one with the Jewish, I'm a Jewish woman, I am a Jewish American. Um, Through my own conducting of interviews and talking to a number of people, not only for this project, but in my everyday life, that is a common thing. A lot of Jews identify themselves as Jewish. It's more so than just a faith or a culture. It is an identity. This is integral to understanding not only how Rabbi Adler celebrates Passover, but how a number of American Jews celebrate Passover as well. I can answer for me personally and I can suggest answers for the Jewish community, which is I'm going to do first. I think for most progressive Jews or um, progressive Jews, I'll say, Passover is largely the family holiday par excellence. Um, so it has been traumatic for most of us in, in the pandemic, because that's the one time of year that family, not the one time of year, but uh, that's the time families will gather. Um, and no matter how elaborate or traditional their ritual, that would be the time that a Jewish family would gather. You know, when I, when I was looking for a house, when I, I got married for the second time, one of the things we were looking for is a dining room that was big enough to hold the Seder. Mm -hmm. So Passover is the time when you, you pull out the bridge tables and you, you move the furniture and you set the table for 20 people. Beyond being just an incredibly important holiday where families get to see each other, Rabbi Adler also tells me about its importance to the Jewish story and the reason why it is celebrated, that it's a story of liberation and escape of the Israelites from Egypt. Um, so it's a big family experience for a lot of people, irrespective of how they experience the actual ritual or the symbolic meaning of the moment. Um, but if we want to talk about the symbolic meaning and the ritual both are are really um i think can be very personal and very meaningful for individuals because it's a holiday about liberation mm. and historically it's the exodus of the ancient israelites from egypt so the main um refrain of passover is in every generation we each are supposed to feel as if i myself was a slave and liberated and that's such an important message um, for our lives today to experience that feeling of oppression and liberation. And in experiencing that, we are ideally to feel empathy and compassion for those still experiencing oppression and needing liberation and be moved to work towards it. And people also experience it, those who take it seriously can apply it on a personal level, level to um, individual personal 
um, enslavements and oppressions, whether that is in our relationships or regarding substances or work experiences. There are ways in which any one of us feels oppressed and needs liberation and, and Passover can be a time to reflect on those things and try to find ways to correct them. Um, so it operates on so many different levels for many different people. Historical level, connecting with my ancient past on a um, social justice and social action level, connecting with oppressions in the world today and being moved to alleviate them. And also on a very, very personal level to try to um, resolve and heal and find liberations in our personal lives. And it's fun and it's delicious. And we gather with friends and family. And like any celebration, Passover comes with specific rituals and traditions, like the Passover Seder, the traditional meal that is eaten by Jews across the globe the first night of Passover to mark the beginning of the holiday. Rabbi Adler also makes the point to me that the Passover Seder is an incredibly theatrical experience. It involves all five of the senses and gets everyone at the table to participate in one way or another. That being said, there are some traditions that some families have that Rabbi Adler isn't too keen on. Um, I have a couple of soapboxes that I climb on regarding Passover that um, maybe make me kind of a Grinch, I suppose. But to me, they detract from the meaning. Um, one of the aspects of the Passover Seder is recounting in the story of Exodus, the 10 plagues that God wrought on the Egyptians um, to convince the Pharaoh to let the people go. So as part of the Passover ritual, you, you recount the 10 plagues and um, the traditional ritual at that moment is to lessen um, the wine from your cup for each plague because wine is the symbol of joy and liberation. And so we're not supposed to rejoice in the suffering of the Egyptians. We're supposed to be sad that they had to suffer in order to let our people go. And so we lessen the wine. Um, but something that a lot of people have done in order to mostly engage children in the Seder and keep people having fun and enjoying is turning the plagues, um, like representing the plagues with toys and, and turning them into fun. And so having little frogs to play with on the table or cotton balls for the, um, what is it, the boils or, so they, and they even sell little bags of plagues so that you can play with them during the Seder. And for me, that's a ritual that I can, I want the children to have fun, but not around the plagues. I want them to understand that the plagues are not a good thing. Right. So that's right. one that I kind of bristle at, that a lot of families have fun with the plagues. But Rabbi Adler lets me know that there are other ways that she engages children at the table for Seder. One of her favorite traditions is handing out hand mirrors to the children and having them draw what they think Egypt looks like with pyramids and palm trees, and then has them look at themselves in the mirror and feel as if they were one of the Israelites escaping Egypt. A kind of cool way to connect with your ancestors in my mind. It's actually this notion of connecting with your ancestors' suffering and remembering where they came from that makes Passover so fascinating to me. The complex mix of emotions that are celebrated during this time. And Rabbi Adler puts it so succinctly as describing it as a paradoxical celebration. 
This paradox even boils down to the food that is eaten at a Seder meal. Rabbi Adler tells me that Jews are commanded to eat unleavened bread during the week of Passover, but she also thinks it's an important cultural aspect of connecting with your ancestors to know what they went through, another subtle way for them to connect with the suffering and eventual liberation of their ancestral people. That being said, Rabbi Adler tells me that there is a trend recently of people wanting to include more decadent foods in their Seder meals as a sense of celebration. But to her, matzah is what is the most important, to remember where you came from and to remember those who came before you. It's not all or or nothing of any one idea. It's, It's oppression and redemption. And we're supposed to experience both because you can't really appreciate freedom unless you unless you've appreciated experienced some kind of non-freedom. So the holiday itself and the experience of it is supposed to be both and. So the Seder meal, while we are talking about being slaves and eating matzah, it is supposed to be a festive meal. I choose to, uh, this is just my personal choice, to avoid all the delicious Passover delicacies that you can get now with food science. Um, If you go to the Passover aisle in a store in a Jewish neighborhood, you can find kosher for Passover everything. You can find bagels and you can find pancakes and pastas and cakes galore. And to me, that undermines the whole meaning of Passover because it's only for a week. It's not like we have to deprive ourselves for the rest of our lives, but for a week we should let go of those things. Towards the end of our interview, I asked Rabbi Adler if she had anything that she wanted to impart upon people about Judaism or about Passover to demystify it. And she included a very important point about cultural appropriation that I think is important to include in this broadcast. Passover is a Jewish holiday. Mm -hmm. And it's become popular among churches. And I think in their minds, they feel they are being inclusive and ecumenical by saying, we're going to hold a Passover Seder. Rabbi, would you come and lead it? And um, I always have to say, uh, thank you, but no. You are welcome to come to my Seder or my synagogue Seder, or I will come and lead a an educational model Seder of what Jews would be doing at this time. But I feel very strongly that it's inappropriate. It's, it's religious and cultural appropriation when church communities um, celebrate the Passover in a Christian context. Um, Passover is a Jewish holiday. I know that for Christians, you know, there is the um, presumption or understanding that Jesus's last supper may have been a Passover Seder but celebrating Jesus last supper is not celebrating Passover. Passover is a Jewish experience. It's a, it's a holiday commemorating a Jewish experience in a Jewish way. And so I feel like uh, churches though very well-meaning when they celebrate Passover, um, I feel like it, it is misguided, especially when when holding a Passover Seder that celebrates Jesus, because again, Passover is a Jewish experience and Jesus belongs in Christianity. Ultimately, Rabbi Adler would encourage everyone to learn about Judaism and to learn about Passover, but in a respectful way that does not appropriate Jewish experiences and culture. 
And I encourage you all to also reach out to your local rabbis and see what they have to say about this wonderful time of year. Now, for the second part of this Passover section, I decided to sit down with two Jews with very different experiences, as you'll see. My name is Eva Silverman. Um, I'm from the north side of Chicago. Um, I'm a political science major, and I'm really excited to be on the show. I'm, I'm excited to talk. Eva is a personal friend of mine. She grew up on the north side of Chicago and was in a Jewish household her entire life. But recently, she found out she's more than religiously Jewish. Sure. So I grew up in a Jewish family. Um, my parents had a really awesome mindset of, you know, raising us Jewish, but also when we got to a certain age, letting us decide our religion if, if, if Judaism didn't sit with us. Personally, Judaism sat with me really nicely, so I'm still Jewish. Um, but recently I found out that I'm not only religiously Jewish, but ethnically Jewish. Um, I did a, one of those DNA tests and I found out that I'm a little over 50% Ashkenazi Jewish. Um, so that, that kind of made me feel more connected to the religion. Um, and that's something I'm still trying to unpack. Eva's American Jewish upbringing influences how she celebrates the holiday tremendously, but it differs extremely from the other person that I sat down with for this section. Dr. Narit Zamora, a professor of history at Hamlin University, who was born and raised in Israel and immigrated to the U.S. to pursue her Ph.D., Israelis. <laughs> it depends which uh, which kind of, you know, it depends how religious or culturally uh, the Israelis are, right? In that sense, right. uh, we are very different, you know. Um. In recounting her tales of her youth, Professor Zamora drives home the point that for her, Passover was almost completely cultural rather than religious. Um, the whole atmosphere was um, very friendly, not not religious at all. It was very cultural in many ways. Interestingly enough, Eva also echoes this thought of it being more cultural for her than it was religious. While she acknowledges there's a lot of history and that religion definitely played a part in how she celebrated Passover growing up, what she mainly thinks about Passover is a time for family and connecting. This in many ways is connected to the idea of Jewish identity that Rabbi Adler presented in the first half of this part. I know that there's a long history and a great story of Passover, but when I think about Passover in my mind, I think of how once a year we would go to Papa Nawawi's house, we'd have an incredible dinner and we would just have a great time connecting with family that we wouldn't see all the time. It was all about food and celebration and family and it was a really great holiday. I don't recall if we would go to high holiday services for this specific holiday, but I know that every year we would do, you know, you know, dinner, and then we would have some prayers being read by my grandma very poorly, but she would try her best. And it was, it was always a great uh, celebration once, once a year. For Eva, this time of year is all about family, connecting and celebrating. She recalls all of the wonderful fond memories she has of competing with her siblings to look for the matzah her grandfather hid, a common tradition for a lot of Jewish Americans. But interestingly enough, Professor Zamora's most fond memories are connected with when her father would bring home strangers to the Passover Seder. But besides the food and all of that, my father always brought um, guests to the table. Hmm. And sometimes the guests were unbelievable. You know, it could be somebody who was hitchhiking, a tourist who didn't have any place to go, and he would bring him in. Wow. And so, <laughs> so the Seder was... Um, unexpected always, really, you know, you never knew how many people would be there, always there were extra. 
and it was in multi languages because um you know if it was a russian jew and for the first time they were doing passover they read the Agadah in russian people who did english you know and other italian so so it was very interesting of course though the best way to learn is through personal experiences and in our interview i decided to ask our guests if they had any personal stories about growing up and eva had one that was too funny not to include um, and I remember at one of the Passovers at my grandma's house, um, she was singing her prayers and normally she would have us kids do the mitzvah, which was like the, eat, uh, the prayer you do before you drink the wine and before you eat the bread for the first time. Um, but at this point, Ben and I had already been confirmed and Leah was in college. So none of us really were actively practicing and didn't really remember any of the prayers. So I just remember the three of us being like, Barukat, uh, ooh, I don't remember the ba, da, da. Like we were just trying to make up something so grandma wouldn't be upset with us for not remembering this prayer. And I just remember that very specifically and there were candles and she had this, my grandma had this huge book and she was just like looking up at us like so disappointed because <laughs> we didn't remember this prayer. And it's like the easiest one. But yeah, that's something I remember so specifically. Yeah. As wonderful as those stories are, at the end of the day, it is abundantly clear that Passover is an important part to the Jewish experience. And whether you celebrate it as a cultural holiday, a religious one, or as part of your core identity, it is a time for Jews to celebrate in community, and in family, to remember where they come from and to remember where they are going, and to push for freedom and liberation for all people. We now move on to the second part of our broadcast, Easter, the traditions, the stories, the hope, the significance and meaning to American Christians, and also, interestingly enough, some of the secularization of the holiday in recent decades. You know, I think I think Easter, like Christmas, is um, has become a very secularized um, holiday, religious holiday. It has its religious roots, obviously. Um, Christians celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Um, you know, I don't have quite the view of that that I did when I was a kid. Um, growing up, but even my growing up, we, we sort of did a mix of the things. I mean, we had all the bunnies and chickens, you know, chicks and, and Easter baskets and candy and, you know, all that kind of stuff all around the house. And that was sort of the symbol of celebrating, but that stuff is more about spring happening. Um, It has more pagan roots, if you will. Um, which I, I didn't understand as a kid, but I I know more about. That's Anita Bradshaw. She's an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, a rather progressive form of Protestant Christianity. Um, many people know one of our ancestral strains, and that's the Congregationalist. Um, pretty pretty well known in American history, anyway, in terms of, uh, you know, Puritans and pilgrims and all that kind of stuff. But that's a heritage that is part of us, but isn't really where we are at all anymore. Um, I mean, our, each of our congregations is very independent, but outside of that, a lot of the theology and stuff we let go of a long time ago. Um, 
I also have a PhD from Luther Seminary, and that is in systematic theology and congregational life and leadership. So I, I'm a theologian who is very engaged with church. Her roles as a minister and theologian go beyond the pulpit, though. She's deeply involved in social justice through her roles and the church, something that's become increasingly important in the turbulent times in her home state, Minnesota. Um, so that's that's sort of the official piece right now. I am currently um, one of the associate conference ministers of the Minnesota Conference of the United Church of Christ. And um, that means um, I have a lot of administrative responsibility. I work with churches and pastors, people preparing for ministry, all those kinds of good things, um, and as well as being a presence. And part of my job is also working with our social justice prophetic witness outreach. So um, with the trial of Derek Chauvin happening, um, we've been very involved in the George Floyd, the aftermath of the George Floyd um, murder and trying to help our congregations to really do some serious anti-racism work. Um, many of them had been doing that, but we've kind of tried to up that with our folks. So, Like anybody, her personal life and all of the things that she has learned as a theologian and minister have all influenced how she approaches Easter and how she celebrates it. You know, so I think I think this it's a mixed bag, and I approach Easter as a mixed bag um, in many ways because we, it is spring, it's time of rebirth, and resurrection is about hope. As any good Christian can tell you, Easter is all about resurrection and hope. It is, after all, the holiday that their Savior came back from the dead. You know, the traditional story is Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, what we celebrate as Good Friday, um, and then three days later is alive again, um, is raised from the dead. Um, I don't know how all of that happened. Um, I don't know. Um, my progressive sort of leanings teach me that... Um, Scripture is true, but it may not have happened that way, mm. if that makes sense. Um, and I, I borrow that. That's not original to me. Um, so exactly what happened in that whole story that we tell, I'm not sure. But whatever it was, was significant enough that the story lasted through the centuries. And it is the story that birthed what became Christianity and later the church. Um, so whatever happened to those early disciples on that, what we call Easter morn, um, it was important and it changed their lives. And it sent them out to say, you know, there is life and there is hope in a world that is often filled with violence and death. So that's, that's sort of how I approach it. And yet, you know, we celebrate, you know, we've got decorations that I'll put out in a couple of weeks and, um, you know, we'll do all of the services that we normally do. Of course, we're doing them online with the pandemic, which is not to me as meaningful, but it works. Um, and then, um, you know, we'll celebrate this time. 
And celebration obviously takes a very different meaning for a lot of people. But Anita lets me know that in a usual non-pandemic year, what she does to take in this time of self-reflection and celebration. I wish because of COVID, we can't do what we normally do, which would be to get together with friends, either at our house or somebody's house. Or in the past few years, we have gone out for Easter brunch kind of thing. It's a theme that we're starting to see develop between both Passover and Easter. And you will also see later on this episode with other people that we've talked to that gathering and celebrating with a community, with friends and with family is an integral part to all of these religious holidays. And of course, Anita had her own theory of why this is. Well, it's certainly a good excuse for a party, if you will, or (laughs) or a celebration. Um, I, I think times... You know, certainly we don't have to have a holiday to celebrate community, Um, but we do have, um, I think holidays offer us an excuse to really get together and to celebrate. Um, And, um, you know, we had a custom for a while with friends when we would have them over to the house on Easter of, of asking each person to offer something they were grateful for. You know, what was something that they could celebrate that day? Excuse me. And um, I think we're social beings. You know, we were created for being social. We were created for relationship. Um, And I think those relationships are having a a good relationship with oneself. and that's important, uh, a good relationship with God. And that's certainly for me, a very important, but all of that is about being able to be in relationship and support one another. And wrapping up my time with Anita, I asked her, of course, what her favorite memories and traditions are of this time of year, celebrating Easter. And she gave the most iconic of answers. I don't know why this came to mind, but it just did. Um, and that is Easter egg hunts. You know, as a kid, we did them. Uh, My parents would hide eggs in my grandparents' yard usually, and then we'd go hunting for them. Um, Churches I've served, that's been a big thing that the adults, actually, we've often used the high school youth to hide the eggs, and then we take the kids outside, and it it is so much fun to watch their joy and their glee. And when our friends started having children, um, one child in particular who we're very close to, although she's now a young woman and a sophomore in college, which is hard to believe because I was there the night she was, or the day she was, the night she was born. Um, in any case, we would create an Easter egg hunt for her um, in our yard, and we would do things like that. But the most fun Easter egg hunt I had was one Easter when we were living in Connecticut. Um, a colleague of mine who had also been a professor of mine invited a whole bunch of us over for Easter. Um, and they lived next door to a park. And lo and behold, when we finished eating lunch, they said, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt. So here's all these adult women, the oldest of whom at that point was probably close to 80. And we're all out having an Easter egg hunt, you know. And so there's something about those kinds of things that I think stick with us 
um, allow us to have fun, allow us to, you know, be silly. Um, you know, for little kids, there's something magical about, oh, there's one, there's one, you know, and they're running around, you know, um, trying to find as many as they can. And um, so anyway, Isn't that that's, what that's the memory that comes back over the years. Isn't that what Easter's all about, the joy of it all? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I think that's why it's a really good ritual, if you will, of celebrating um, the joy and the hope um, and, and the life that we find in, in celebrating that story, in celebrating the holiday, um, in celebrating with each other. Her memories and celebrations with other people is the perfect segue into our second guest for the Easter section, Mr. Nolan Sherburn. My name is Nolan Sherburn. I'm 20 years old right now, and I am a practicing Lutheran. My family is pretty religious. Um, my mom's side are also Lutheran, and my dad's side are Catholic. So that's always fun to get sort of two different sides of it. Much like Anita did, Nolan talks to me all about the importance of Easter in the Christian tradition and what the celebration looks like from a religious standpoint. Easter is kind of the um, celebration of Jesus's resurrection. Um, so as a Lutheran, we kind of have a whole week leading up to Easter, um, Holy Week, um, you know, starting out. Nolan tells me that Palm Sunday is the first official day of Holy Week. It marks the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. But Nolan, like many Christians, believes that the actual time to start preparing for Easter is a whole six weeks before in a time called Lent. Lent is a time period of 40 days where Christians observe fasting and also giving up mortal vices and indulgences in a way to self-reflect and prepare themselves for the most holy of days, Easter. In fact, one of the greatest American traditions and celebrations, and in fact a celebration all around the world, is directly tied to Lent. Ever heard of Mardi Gras? It's also known as Shrove Tuesday in a lot of Christian communities, and it actually marks the day before Lent begins officially. It's a time where people celebrate, eat good and fancy rich foods before they have to take the next 40 days to self-reflect in preparation for Easter. Now moving past the context of what Easter is, Nolan is quick to talk about his own personal observances of Easter, what it means to him personally, and what it means to him faith-wise as well. Um, so... I don't really get to see my family a whole lot. Um, part of that is because obviously I'm away at college. Um, part of it is obviously because of the world we're living in right now. Um, so Easter time has always been sort of important to me because it's a time where I get to see my family again. Um, we all, you know, when we're all together, um, both sides of the family, all in the same place. Um, and from a faith standpoint, it's obviously very important. It's an important day to, um, I would say, all of the Christian beliefs. Um, but I would say to me, Easter is a very important time uh, for anybody who believes in, I would say, Christianity. Um, because it, it's sort of one of those major things that happens in the Bible 
it's one of the major things that they teach you in Sunday school. They teach you at church. Um, so you're kind of like raised to see it as this big event, which obviously I believe it is. As both Anita and Nolan said, Easter is a time for community and a time for family, and nothing says family time like a good Easter dinner. Nolan regales me what his favorite foods are from growing up and what he usually sees at the table. We, we do this um, like a honey-glazed baked ham, you know, cut into thick slices. Oh, it's amazing. Um, I feel like another Easter staple is like cheesy potatoes or mashed potatoes um deviled eggs bread rolls roast veggies um one thing that i particularly like that my family makes is jello eggs so like we have these jello molds um you pour jello into these like egg-shaped molds and then you just have egg-shaped jello so it's just it's, it's nothing special it's just regular old jello shaped differently yeah, regular old jello shaped like eggs. <laughs> classic. I like it. I cla- that's your classic kind of middle American. And just like Anita, Nolan has his own egg story. I have this really funny video of little Nolan. I don't remember how old I was, but I was very small. Um, and we were dyeing eggs at my house because that's another thing we do. Um, you know, dipping eggs into different colored dyes. And in this video, I have just like, this blue dye all over my face and I don't know how it got there. I don't think I was, you know, rubbing the eggs on my face, but I love that video. Um, Ultimately though, while he does enjoy celebrating the secular parts of this holiday, it is still a deeply moving and powerful day in his mind. And I'm sure for a lot of Christians as well. Um, I mean, I think for any, uh, Christian faith, this time is a is a very important time to sort of remember um, why we are able to do the things that we do, um, because, you know, people sin every day. And in my faith, I believe that Jesus died for our sins so that we will all be forgiven and be able to go to heaven. Um, so this time is obviously very important in that um, it's when Jesus gave up his life for us, um, which I think is pretty important. I, I like thinking about that around this time. Now moving on to part three, the final holiday we will be talking about, and that is the Muslim holiday of Ramadan. For this section, I sat down with two Muslim chaplains at two different universities, as well as a religious studies professor, to give us a little more history and context to the importance of Ramadan in Muslim life. Sure. So my name is Mark Berkson, and uh, I teach at Hamlin University in the religion department. I have been teaching here for 21 years this year, um, and uh, love it here. I live right in the neighborhood, in fact. I live in the Midway, so I walk to the... Professor Berkson's main area of study is Asian religions, which is helpful for the conversation at hand because Islam is truly a global religion with an important place in South and Southeast Asian lives. And that my focus is East and South Asian religions. So I I teach the traditions of China and Japan and India. Um, And as part of South Asia, I do a lot of work on Islam. 
because and that's connected with our topic today because people may not realize, but actually South Asia is the part of the world where most Muslims by number live, uh, you know, so that so India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And Professor Bergson really hammers home the point that Islam is a truly diverse and very global religion. I love teaching all the traditions, but I do sometimes feel uh, there's a special importance about teaching Islam because I would I would say the, mo- the you know, that's the religion about which there is the largest amount of ignorance and stereotyping in the West and in America in particular. Um, people who associate it with simply headline grabbing, you know, events or, you know, the newspapers, and they don't realize, not only do they not realize the everyday lives of most Muslims, right, like anybody else, but they don't realize the vastness, the beauty, the richness, and the diversity of the tradition. And they, they think, oh, Islam, that's Middle East, right? Well, its origins are in the Middle East. But if you add up all Muslims in the Middle East, depending on how you count the, what's the Middle East. But if you add up the biggest number, it's maybe around 20% of Muslims worldwide. It's a minority. So uh, the, the single country with the most Muslims is in Indonesia, right? So Southeast Asian and the single region with the most is South Asia. So you're right. Islam is truly a South and Southeast Asian religion as well. And the other key lesson is if people start studying Islam, they immediately realize, wow, this is an incredibly diverse tradition. People who are Christian will often totally understand the diversity of Christianity. They'll be like, oh, yes, of course, I know like the Roman Catholics are really different than the Baptists who are really different than the Quakers who are really different than, right? And they've seen it in their own lives. Oh, some people are really observant. They go to church all the time. They memorize the Bible. And then some people are eh, pretty secular or maybe they'll go twice a year on Easter and Christmas. I mean, they know the diversity but they don't realize that's true of other religions. They'll be like, oh, all Muslims worship this way or all Muslims believe in this way. Um, but in fact, there's trem- as much diversity in Islam as any tradition. At the same time, and this is a key thing, I think anyone who thinks about religion should think about this. What is that sort of play of diversity and unity? Like what, mm. yes, there's diversity, but what unifies the religion? Um, and in Islam, there are some things that really do act that way to unify the worldwide Muslim community. Maybe this is a transition to your topic because Perfect, yeah. one of them is the five pillars of Islam, one of which is the fasting during Ramadan. Um, but of course, all any observant Muslim is going to consider the Quran to be the, a perfect divine revelation from God. All observant Muslims will take Muhammad as the prophet and messenger of God, the final prophet, the seal of the prophets. Uh, and they will all aspire to follow these five pillars. So yeah. amidst the diversity, there is this unity. With this idea of religious unity and diversity in mind, and with the idea of fasting during Ramadan, we now turn to my second guest and expert, Dr. Sadaf Shire. So first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to your show. I'm very happy and I'm pleased for the opportunity because it allows us to develop better religious literacy about Muslims, Islam, and diverse people in the U.S. Because definitely U.S. is one of those very unique places on earth that has such a diversity. And there's a lot of desire to learn about people. And that's why I'm really, really thankful for this opportunity today. Well, so Dr. Shire is originally from Pakistan and came to America to pursue higher education on a scholarship. Eventually, she found a position as a chaplain for Muslim students at St. Thomas University in Minnesota. Later on, I started working at University of St. Thomas as a Muslim chaplain, and I'm really, really happy. And I'm 
thankful and pleased for the opportunity to be able to work in a U.S. university where I can help Muslim students, I can help develop literacy about Islam, and Minnesota is a beautiful place to be. As we've been talking about more and more about this interfaith kind of dialogue, um, I'm assuming that a number of my listeners are not Muslim. Um, Would you be willing to kind of give us a little bit of a background about uh, Ramadan and its importance in Islam and kind of the religious kind of, you know, aspects of it? Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very detailed um, topic, and I'll be selective in what where I focused on. So Ramadan is one of the five pillars in Islam. It's mandatory. Every able-bodied Muslim who's not traveling, who's not pregnant, who's not nursing, who's not old, does not have any sickness and is above age uh, nine or 10 has to fast. And if you don't fast, then there are religious repercussions for that. you either have to make up for those fast later or uh, you have to uh, feed a hungry for 30 days. So th- there are those aspects to it, definitely. At the same time, it, we Muslims believe like the word Ramadan, the, the word Psalm means, Psalm is an Arabic word that means fast. And the connotation comes from that in old days, they would keep a horse hungry and thirsty for a specific period of time, enable to get the horse ready for rigorous activity. So it's like soul. We keep our soul hungry and thirsty to train it, to train it for better purposes, for higher purposes in life, for the closeness of God, as well as for being a better human being in the world. So some of the aspects of Ramadan that are really related to our everyday life are, for example, social justice. As I told you that um, in Muslim countries, especially, and in the mosques in the U.S., when we fast, it's open to public. So everyone brings their food in masjid, in a mosque, and we share it, and the doors are open. Anyone can come, anyone can sit with us, anyone can eat with us irrespective of the gender and language and social class or race or anything. So it's like, you know, bringing people together. What happens in that is if there are people who are socioeconomically marginalized, they get very good quality free food every day with with integrity. You don't have to go tell anyone, I am needy, I need. You, You just are welcome there, right? Then also, When everyone gets together, uh, there is like naturally there are venues for those conversations around social issues, around struggles, and positive things come out of it. At the end of Ramadan, everyone has to give a particular amount of charity. And that charity has to go to the people who are more deserving in the community, socioeconomically. When we are hungry and thirsty for 16 hours, we really understand what hunger is. We really understand what that struggle is. And that is the time we ultimately start thinking about those in the world who are struggling with hunger and thirst. They don't have to be Muslims. They don't have to be the people who are fasting. But that definitely is the time when we 
through experience, we understand what hunger is like. What is the mother thinking, a mother who knows that she does not have meal for her children? How is she thinking? So it's like understanding deeply human suffering. And that, that's a beautiful aspect of Ramadan. Also like uh, equality, no matter who we are, like if I'm a government servant or I'm jobless or I'm a governor of a, of a state, everyone is hungry. Everyone is going through the same experience, roughly the same experience. Everyone breaks fast at the same time, right? So there is some lesson of equality there, definitely. Then celebration and an openness, welcoming. As I said, in Muslim countries um, around the world, people open the doors of their houses. Like in my family, literally there was a tra tradition and there still is a tradition around iftar time, we unlock our door, front door, we open it. The hope is that whosoever is walking through the street at that time, no matter who they are, they can knock at the door and come in and sit with us to eat at that time. Uh, life stops. We bring everyone together at that time. So there is lesson of social cohesion. You don't need to know who that other person is. You just need to understand their human needs. So there are those lessons in uh, fasting that are really, really important for our society, for, um, for a healthy society. Ramadan is a month of charity. Um, charity happens in many ways, giving money, sharing your resources, also helping other people physically in different ways. With a better understanding of the religious and philosophical aspects of why Muslims fast during Ramadan, I defer to Professor Berkson to tell me why this specific month of Ramadan is important. So, okay, Ramadan is the name of the ninth month of the Islamic lunar calendar uh, during which this fast takes place. The fast itself, uh, the word psalm is the word that they use in Arabic to indicate fasting. And it is done, why is it in that particular time period? What is significant about the month of Ramadan? Uh, that was the time that the Quran was first revealed to the prophet Muhammad. So that moment of revelation, right, changed the world. Just a quick editor's note for all of my non-Muslim listeners, the Quran is the central religious text in Islam. And the prophet Muhammad is the great prophet in Islam, according to Muslims. Also, in the spirit of education, every time that the Prophet Muhammad's name is said, most Muslims will follow it by saying, peace be upon him, to show reverence. Now, something interesting to note was that both Professor Berkson and Dr. Shire brought up the point that Islam works on a lunar calendar. So Ramadan happens at different points during the Gregorian calendar. For instance, some years it's in the spring, like this year, and sometimes it's in the winter or in the summer. This, of course, influences how different Muslims experience Ramadan. For instance, if it happens during the winter when days are shorter, it's quote-unquote an easier time since you don't have to fast as long. However, in the summer, sometimes the sun can be out for as long as 16 hours, which is a brutal time to fast, not have any water, not have any food, or any medicine. However, for Muslims, there are a ton of upsides, not only religiously, but also health-wise, something my third expert also talked about. Assalamualaikum, everyone. I'm ha Imama Hajra, and I'm the Interfaith Chaplain and Director of Muslim Life at McAllister College. For anyone that is curious, Imama is actually a title, not a name. 
The thing I think was most important with the Mama Hajra's conversation is that she built upon both what Dr. Shire said and what Professor Bergson said, but also added another aspect to the purposes and the benefits that one gets out of fasting during Ramadan. We do this for a lot of different reasons. So um, there's the spiritual benefits are, you know, learning, self-restraint, and just being able to rise above like, you know, your impulses and desires, um, sometimes that can lead down a, 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 like a path that you don't want to necessarily go to if you don't have, you know, um, self-discipline. Also, uh, just solidarity with our humanity. So if we can, you know, fasting does like result in some level of suffering. And so if you can really connect to your own suffering, um, it helps you empathize with others, right? And there, you know, sometimes there are people in the world who are without food and drink involuntarily. Um, And so hopefully going through this process of voluntarily giving that up, um, there is uh, hopefully some solidarity there, some understanding for the suffering of others, empathy. Um, Also, it's just a a time of self-sacrifice. So there's a lot of giving of charity um, volunteer work, um, and an opportunity to sort of, um, introspect, reflect, and try and, um, release the old and adopt new sort of, um, patterns either of thought or of behavior, right? So if you wanted to, um, make new goals, Ramadan is the best way to do that, um, the best time to do that. So normally, you know, people have their goal setting at the start of the new year. Um, And for Muslims, that usually happens during Ramadan. Um, And, you know, there's just, I mean, there's just so many other benefits. Like recently I was doing some research and I found out that there's a lot of like health benefits involved um, with the fast as well, right? Like um, fasting can actually, you know, increase detoxification of the body. It can improve gut health, brain health. Um, there's actually this connection between the gut and the brain. It's called like the br- gut brain axis or the gut brain connection. And so like the types of food that you eat as well as like when you're eating and abstaining from eating can impact your um, your brain health. And so just from my personal experience, I realized that I do tend to be a little bit more clear in, in, in my thinking. Um, now that we have a better understanding of the benefits, purposes, and the history of Ramadan and what it means to Muslims all across the world, but specifically in America, Dr. Shire is going to talk us through what an average day looks like during Ramadan for an observant Muslim. Uh So let's talk about how Ramadan may look like for me in April of 2021, because Ramadan starts on um, April 12th and ends on May 11th or 12th. Um, So how it may look like for me, I will wake up around 3.30 a.m., get my only meal for the day ready, start eating, and I have to finish eating before 5. Well, wait. I have to finish eating before 4.30 because that is, yes, that is when our first prayer of the day starts. All right, so then that means no medicine, no food, no drink, no inhalers, nothing until 
12.30 p.m., that is when the sun goes down, right? So that is one aspect. Nothing enters the body cavity at all. The other aspect is when I'm not eating or drinking, I'm able to focus more, lots of prayers. There's a special evening prayer um, that starts around 9 p.m. And then that that's for Ramadan especially, that's pretty long. Uh, it may take me an hour or two hours. So how it may look like for me, the part of the year when I'm here in the US, that means it will be just me and my husband doing the morning breakfast together and then going to work. And then when we get tired, go back to our car and take a nap in the car in work. Uh, during lunchtime, instead of take, doing lunch, we'll go in car and take a nap or in schools or colleges where they have um, special rooms for different student communities. For example, if they have a Muslim student center, students may be able to go to their student union or, or um, MSA office and take a little nap there, things like that. Then around um, 6 p.m. I start getting ready for the only meal, like breaking fast. I get the breakfast ready. During COVID, it has to be at home. But before COVID, the routine in the US is we go to mosques and there are community iftars there. So I bring my food there and everyone else brings their food there and we break our fast together or we can stay at home um, and uh, do our only meal of the day. It's important for the family to get together at that time. And then when I schedule my day, I make sure that I finish everything that I have to do before iftar because then, you know, when I'm eating after 15, 16 hours, body needs some time to adapt to it. And it's hard for me to right away get up, like eat and then get up and start doing other things. So I need to, you know, just take a little break uh, from 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, and then offer prayers and other things. So that is the time when I relax a lot. An iftar meal, by the way, is the meal that is eaten at the end of the day on any day in Ramadan to break the fast. Now, like Dr. Shire said, most people go to a mosque to break this fast. However, Imam Hajra said to me a very funny story about having to balance the idea of breaking fast when you're hungry or breaking fast as a community. You know, there's always kind of like a rush, right? Like you have the iftar and then sometimes you need to make the prayer, right? And so... There's like an evening prayer that we do, um, but sometimes we're too hungry, so we eat the food like a little bit <laughs> before doing the prayer and then come back to it. But if you do that, like you get full. And so like you want to eat the food right away at once before you get full because it's actually really, like your stomach constricts considerably during Ramadan. And so like my problem is always trying to get enough food down to like get me through the next day because mm -hmm. like literally I'll be eating like only like a quarter of a plate. And um, so it's just really like, it just makes you so conscious of like everything related to like your eating. Like if I don't, if I wait until after the evening prayer to eat, then it's better for me, but you'll have delayed the breaking of the fast. So um, that's always a dilemma. Like every day it's like, okay, should we pray first or eat first, blah, blah, blah. And, like, <laughs> and then pray and come back. Right? Yeah. Just and like, um, like, yeah, like I think every day we're like, you know what, today we're going to just quickly pray first and then eat. 
and it never happens. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just like the same old battle, like every day when the iftar time comes in, we're like, okay, we're just going to eat a few snacks and then it stretches into like dinner. And we're like, okay, we should have prayed first. <laughs> so that's kind of like what happens during Ramadan for me. Now, since this show is all about American life and American culture, it makes sense that we talk about what American Muslims go through during the month of Ramadan, and specifically unique things that they have to face while practicing their religion during this month. And Professor Berkson pointed out that community is a really important part to Ramadan, something that is rather difficult for a number of American Muslims. It's, it's interesting because I'll, I'll say a couple of things about that first of all, American Muslim, when you live in a Muslim majority country, the support you get through your fast, it's everywhere. Everyone's doing it. Right. So there's that sense, right, that you're part of a community. Now, there are parts of America, certainly parts of the Twin Cities, where that's going to, you're going to have that feel too, if you're living in a community where you have other Muslims around you. But if you're not, it's difficult. I mean, you know, having the internet, being able to connect that way, maybe one thing, but it's still not the same. So I think one of the biggest challenges for American Muslims during Ramadan is just the community and children. I think young people have a, have a problem with this because I've heard stories. You could ask people about this, but um, of, you know, students who are fasting for Ramadan, they, you know, they're, they're doing their best. They're young. It's hard. And other kids like not understanding and teasing them or whatever, and be like, Oh, wish you could have this sandwich. Oh, it's so good. Why aren't you eating? What's your problem? Right. So it's just like, oh, more of this ignorance, right? More of the challenges. They're already facing challenges. So another unique problem that American Muslims are facing currently is on U.S. college campuses. How are they able to celebrate their religion, especially during Ramadan, when things aren't necessarily built around their calendar? A lot of universities are taking this into consideration and rebuilding how they approach their calendars. Dr. Shire explains a little bit more in depth. Yes, and that's really important. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a really important conversation. For example, I work at University of St. Thomas and we are working very hard to make sure our students are able to eat according to their religious traditions. We, we, don't, we don't want to make our students choose between their faith and education, access to education, because these things, they make access to education hard. So yes, that is one thing. Second thing, when a student gets up at 3 a.m., right, and you're sharing your room with another student who's not Muslim, or you're living in a traditional uh, residence hall, what happens to your roommate, right? That, that poor guy or girl has never been used to it in their life. So how can you make sure that you get up at 3 a.m. for 30 days and that's not just getting up, it's full activity, right? Cooking and eating or warming up and eating and then washing, evolution and prayer can cause significant noise. So what happens to the sleep of your uh, roommate at that time? Also, everyone is different. Physical needs are different. What if a student feels exhausted uh, while fasting? What if someone gets sick, right? Um, campus counselors and uh, medical staff should know, should be aware of how to treat a student while they're fasting. So those were some important questions. And also students, if they get up at 3 a.m. and walk outside their dorm, then security should know that. 
uh, public safety should know that, well, if the student is outside their dorm at 3 a.m., they are there for perhaps some valid reason. Uh, also, Ramadan is very, very communal activity. As I said, like everyone in the family comes together at 3 a.m. and everyone in the family comes together at fasting, the uh, breaking of the fast time. And then if we are doing it in uh, mosques, there are like hundreds of people there. In Muslim countries, at breaking of the fast time, which is like after sundown, people come out of their houses. They have like these big iftar arrangements in, in the streets. They eat together there. So when we are getting away from that setting, very removed from that very collective celebratory setting every day, and then being alone, and especially during COVID, in your apartment, in your room, either if you're an international student or you're living in a dorm room, um, how does it feel like that? That's like homesickness every day. Whether you're an international student or you're a local US domestic US student, you're going through some of that every day. How can we get together and make sure for, because I know, for example, some schools and colleges have this Ramadan co-op where Muslim students get together at iftar time and then they do iftar together. I know during COVID, it may not be possible um, unless we get creative and work around those um, COVID safe precautions, as well as bring, do the community building, what is it that we can do, right? To keep the spirit of Ramadan alive, to keep our students motivated, and then they feel, have the sense of being together and not going through it alone. These interfaith conversations about students and their accessibility to education are becoming more and more important, and I cannot think of better people to have them than Dr. Shire and Imam Hajra. As we become more and more diverse as a nation and as a people, we need to become more accommodating and more accepting and adaptable to people of all religions. I mean, it is one of our great tenements, right? Freedom of religion, and to express it any way we see fit. As we wrap down our conversation about Islam, I want to leave you with just one more bit. When I was talking to my Muslim experts, I asked them if there was anything they wanted to say about dispelling myths about Islam or about Ramadan. Um, not especially about Ramadan, but I just want to say that um, if you have questions, it's a good thing. Curiosity is a good thing. Know about your neighbors, know about your friends, know about your class fellows, and know from real people, not from Google, not from YouTube. Because there's a lot of material there. And sometimes we don't know what material is correct and what is not. And, and misunderstandings lead to, to fear. That leads to isolation, stereotypes, and then that can sometimes lead to violence. We can disrupt that cycle by knowing each other better, by coming closer to each other. Uh, please, please uh, move forward, meet with your friends and neighbors and colleagues and friends and ask from a place of curiosity with respect. And, I, and I'm very sure American are great people. Um, we are already very diverse, and I, I, I think that that curiosity can bring us to a better place of love and respect. Respect everyone every day and celebrate everyone every day. 
Um, yeah, I would just say, you know, Ramadan, like Muslims love to invite people over to the mosque or even their houses during Ramadan. So if you, you know, wanted to learn more or just wanted to participate in, in an iftar, or even do like a one day fast just to see, you know, like just to experience that, um, feel free to reach out to any of your Muslim friends and I'm sure they'd be more than happy to, um, you know, welcome you into their, their gatherings and, and into their practice. Um, but of course, again, COVID can be, um, <laughs> put a damper on that. But um, yeah, we always welcome non-Muslims uh, learning more about Islam. In wrapping down this program, I'm really happy that I got to speak with all of the clergy members, academics, and practitioners of the various faiths, but I want to leave you all with one last story that I think illustrates the main reason why I wanted to have this, to educate people and to get people involved about learning about so many different things and the interconnectivity of all people who practice religions or don't. When I was talking to Dr. Berkson, he told me a very specific story about a time that he went to a mosque, Masjid Noor and that he experienced an iftar meal and the wonderful cross-section of America that he saw there. One of the things I've seen Muslim communities do in America, and I've been to these, they're awesome, is they have iftar meals that are big interfaith iftar meals. Yeah. So they actually invite everyone, Jews, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, everybody come on and see what we're about, right? And then they'll talk about Ramadan, they'll talk about Islam, and everyone will then go and have a wonderful feast together. And one of the best examples of this, and uh, actually this, this is a really good illustration, it happened at Masjid An-Nur, the, the place I told you about. So one year, you, you talked about how uh, Ramadan can overlap with other holidays. So one year, it was very, it was overlapping with Yom Kippur, which is the Jewish holiday in which Jews fast. Mm -hmm. right? So they fast during the day of Yom Kippur and then break the fast at the end of the day. So it so happened that Muslims were breaking the, the fast. They have an iftar meal at the same time Jews were breaking their fast at Yom Kippur. And Imam El-Amin invited members of a synagogue, Jewish synagogue, to the mosque to break the fast together. I actually remember Keith Ellison was there at the time because he, oh, wow. yeah, that's his mosque, Masjid An Nur. Oh yeah. Um, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful to do that with the communities all coming together. And here's another thing you want to talk about uniquely American. When they serve food at Masjid An Nur, it is a really wonderful combination of traditional Islamic food and African American food, like you know traditional oh, wow. cuisine. And so. What you eat might be a cultural right difference right. too, but I think that the interfaith uh, element of it, inviting communities in, all eating together, um, I think that is that's a really good development among, you know, that American Muslims have moved in that direction, and it really it does help c connect communities across faith lines, um, and and educate people about Islam. So. As we go into this time where Christians, Jews, and Muslims will be celebrating their various holidays, remember to keep an eye out for your neighbor and wish them a happy Passover, Easter, or Ramadan. 
This episode of Slice of Americana was produced, edited, and recorded by myself, Jacob Alloy. My thanks to all of my amazing guests. I could not have asked for a better group of people to come on and contribute. The music you heard at the top of the program is called Hillbilly Music Bed. It is found on audionext.com. The music you're hearing as the outro is called Arkansas Traveler. It's a royalty-free version by Nat Keefe and Hot Buttered Rum. And all the music you heard on the little interludes are an original composition by my friend Kobe Oram. Thank you for that. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to comment and review and subscribe on whatever platform you are getting your podcasts. And if you have the time, go check us out on Instagram as well, at Slice of Americana. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of Slice of Americana, and until I see you again, happy trails. <laughs>